Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Samoma Laws with Restore or Retreat. It is finally a beautiful, I won't it say is. fully fall, but it's yes, cooler. It it's yes, about fall. as fall as we yeah. can get right now. I know. It is so nice outside. We're here in studio, but <laughs> you know, I had my windows open. Mm-hmm. I was just enjoying the weather. So We used to convince our religion teacher to take us outside always on days like this, you know? I mean, I think always the religion teacher, the only one that would ever buy (laughs) into doing it. It should be even nicer this weekend. Our friend Jonathan Foray is going to have Rugaru Fest. Yes, and Restore Retreat will be there. Yes, yes. Um, Victoria will be out there. New Orleans Film Fest is Mm -hmm. this weekend. There's a couple of things. Yeah, we're sponsoring the New Orleans Film Festival this year, which opened last night. Um, We have our Coast 360 video at the Cinema Reset Hub um, at the Contemporary Arts Center. So that's going to be there throughout the duration of the festival. And then we're sponsoring a program of Louisiana Shorts focused on music and culture uh, tomorrow at the Contemporary Arts Center at 630. And then it'll show again at the Broad Theater on Sunday. Very cool. Very cool. I know um, our friends at CRCL are having a Congressional District Forum tonight, Tonight. right after the show ends. You can actually tune in live, right? Yeah. And that's the Southwestern District of the state. Southwestern District. Right. Right. That is true. And then, of course, CRCL is doing some oyster shell bagging and they're doing our other other friends are doing a tree planting when we had Theron in this right weekend. yeah so tree planting on the 20th oyster shell bagging on the 20th um you know so I guess you know as the weather cools down people want to get out and yeah. actually do stuff <laughs> it's, it's tolerable yes indeed yes, well indeed. great well I'm so excited I mean you know we talk about um coast the coast and culture and people and communities in so many ways but you know so many people are studying our cultures and studying how people in our communities respond to the environment respond to flooding and land loss and, you know, sea level rise and all those things. Um, and so I'm excited to have two um, people on the show. Yeah, great guests lined up today. Yeah. Um, first up is Brandon Champagne. So I, I actually saw an article in the Home Courier um, that talked Shout about out. his honors thesis um, from LSU Ogden Honors College. Um, and the thesis is Resilience in Context, How Cultural Factors Influence Migration Decisions of individual Individuals in Flood prone areas of coastal Louisiana. So welcome to Delta Dispatches, Brandon. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Uh, Brandon, you know, down in Homa, you're either, um, you're really a champagne, not a champagne. The fancy people say champagne. (laughs) How do you, how do you say it? Brandon, uh, we, we say champagne, uh, but I won't judge. That's okay. <laughs> that Jacques thing. That's my champagne. <laughs> um, so, so Brandon, that's pretty. I mean, I certainly was not writing honors thesis no. theses that were being reported on uh, in the paper <laughs> in college, but you you did this uh, last spring, I believe. So, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Are you are you from Louisiana? Uh, yes, I was born um, in Thibodeau, but a lot of my family is in uh, hey, Raceland. Hey, shut out. Yeah, so you know some yeah. of those champagnes that I know. I know oh, Sarah Champagne. Uh, probably, related to, probably related to most of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's where they all they're all they all stay in God's country. That's okay. what they call Raceland. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very cool. That's a true story. <laughs> um, so you went to LSU, and, you know, what was your major? So um, I just graduated from LSU in Coastal Environmental Science. That's where I got my bachelor's degree. Um, so I grew up in Youngsville, Louisiana, but I'm originally from Raceland, like I said. Um, I've always loved the coast, um, especially fishing on the coast. Um, a lot of my family's obviously along the coast. Um, so it's great to be able to kind of like make a career out of um, coastal and uh, of my love for the coast, essentially. That's so cool. And I mean, Simone and I have focused on that a lot about kind of the next generation and, 
you know, they're taking on roles of, of understanding our challenges and, and also kind of some of the opportunities that that's faced. So we, we really liked seeing your, um, your study. So tell us a little bit about it and what made you want to research this topic? Right. So I kind of started with a question that was um, basically, um, you know, um, how does culture affect, you know, we, we're losing so much land where, you know, it's all being eroded. There's so many problems, um, but how is that affecting these cultures along the coast, um, there are so many unique cultures. Um, and in turn, how are these cultures um, affecting, you know, how we plan for these um, restoration projects and things like that? Um, so I wanted to test how significant these kind of cultural practices were. Um, and I did a lot of um, ethnographic research into these uh, cultural practices, um, and I, I came up with kind of these um, practices that um, – uh, so it, essentially, they were um, religious um, affiliation. You know um, how strongly um, you are to your faith or spiritual adherence. Um, so that was kind of one of the cultural practices I looked at. Um, another cultural practice was um, uh, natural resource employment, or basically um, living off the land. You know how important that is um, to the cultures down there. And the third being um, uh, the language use. Um, there are a lot of unique languages in South Louisiana, and, and a lot of these communities. French obviously being one of them, so I wanted to see if, you know, how all these things, um, how changes in all these things kind of affect resilience at the, um, uh, at the kind of the big picture level. So, what did you think, Brandon, like, did you have an idea going into, you know, before you started this work that that really changed, um, you know, what, or, or did you just prove kind of what you thought already through your research? Well, we are seeing a lot of changes along the coast, um, certainly a lot of population declines in some communities, and I kind of wanted to um, prove um, some of the reasons why. You know, one of the best theories of why people are moving from the coast is I mean, obviously flooding, you know, erosion, hurricanes, kind of the, the simple ones, uh, kind of the more basic ones, but I want to um, kind of see if some of the more socioeconomic factors were a key or these changes in these cultural practices were, um, were having an effect. And um, I found in my research that they are having an effect. They are significant uh, when it comes to um, the question of why are people leaving from the coast. Yeah, and I, I, you looked at certain geographic areas, and I remember in reading um, your thesis that you kind of focused in on St. Bernard and Cameron parishes, which have ex- uh, experienced a tremendous amount of um, population losses right. as a result of some of the storms. But you also found that there were like high spiritual adherence there, like in terms of, right. you know, so what did that tell you? So that kind of made me scratch my head at first because what the model was telling me was that um, less, resi- less resilient communities um, tend to stick to their faith more. And um, just from, I guess, personal experience and what I was researching, that didn't make sense. But I guess when you think about it and you flip it around, it does kind of make sense. You know, when, when a lot of people leave an area, people who stay behind, for example, in St. Bernard or Cameron Parish, um, they maybe are using their faith kind of as an anchor to their community or to their landscape. Um, and so it, that value in, in, in spirituality is there kind of in, post, in, in kind of post-disaster situations. Yeah, and, and so many times, too, right, this, the, you know, like even historically, the church is the, church is the center of a community, right, and things like that. Right. So, so that, that does make a lot of sense, you know, after you explain it that way. We do hear the term resilience so much, Brandon, like for your purposes and your research. How, how do you define that? So I was actually um, able to define that based off of some um, literature search I did 
um, uh, there were some people um, who were able to do interviews along the coast, and one of the questions they asked was, you know, how do you define resilient? You know, um, give me an example of something that is resilient. And a lot of people uh, responded to that question by saying, um, I define resilience as this decision of whether or not to leave um, our community. And, and so, in other words, what they were saying was um, resilience is um, um, strongly tied to population changes. Um, and so that's um, how I was able to define that. Restore or retreat. Yeah. <laughs> literally, yeah. Right? Literally. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, through the years, we've had people suggest us it should be like restore, protect, or retreat, right? You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that, that kind of is the point. That That's a good way to describe it because we do hear um, it in so many different ways, and people not on the coast use it differently. Um, so right. so it, you have a good point well made on, on how you define it. Right. So um, speaking of kind of resilience and protection and, and restoration, um, you talk about the that cultural heritage and values are kind of preserving those are an objective of the Coastal Master Plan. And we talk about Coastal Master Plan a lot and some of the projects. And so why do you think that is such an important objective in terms of, um, you know, coastal planning and, and, and measures to protect our coast? Right. Right. Well, I think what we're seeing in coastal Louisiana is so unique. Um, not many places around the world have this issue of, you know, sinking land and losing land. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, we do have to restore the land. Um, but at the same time, um, there are some things that we're going to lose that, you know, we can't necessarily restore. You know, there are some culture and history and these traditions um, that it, once we lose them, um, they're, they're gone for it forever. So that's why they're so invaluable. Um, for us to protect and um, um, preserve for future generations. Very good. So, Brandon, we are almost against the break. We're going to come back and we'll have a fun question to ask you. Uh, we promise to lighten it up a little bit, but we have a lot more questions about some of the maps that you use with population change and some of those things. So if you don't mind holding on with us through the break. Perfect. Thanks. Great. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats, 
for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore a Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM, always available online at deltadispatches.org. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And we are back with Brandon Champagne. Mm-hmm. There we go. Uh, who did a thesis on resilience uh, and cultural factors and influencing um, decisions for individuals in flood-prone areas at, with LSU's Honors College. So, um, I guess, Brandon, we want to get back into some of the meat of your thesis, but I think Simone might have a fun question for you uh, before we do that. We do. Sometimes we have really hard, hard-hitting questions. Um, this time we're going to keep it light. What is your favorite fall activity in Louisiana? Football. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. I was thinking I was thinking you might say like hunting or something. I think <laughs> there's only so well, many choices to that. Fishing is a close second. Um, I was actually lucky. I was in the Golden Band from Tiger Am, uh, Tiger. Oh, Tiger very Land, cool! Um, for the four years I was at LSU. Very so good. That's like a job. Definitely going to say for for um, those four years. Um, definitely, yeah. definitely football. <laughs> that's like a like an actual job. Like that's a lot of work. Um, Chet, what, oh, yeah. What instrument did you play? Uh, I played saxophone. Nice. Very nice. Uh, Chet Chasson, who is the executive director of Port Fouchon, was in the Golden Band as well. Looks like his daughter will do that too. So Very cool. Yes, yes. Um, very cool. Good answer. Good answer. I can see why you, you said that. So um, we actually have talked about this on the show before, but you used the CPRAs. Uh, it was then called the Flood Risk and Resiliency Viewer. Now I think they call it the Master Plan Viewer. But you, you did use that resource, right? And so tell us how you used it and what did that tell you? Right. So um, in addition to looking at culture and how those changes affect resilience, I also wanted to look at um, other factors, including socioeconomic factors and also flood risk factors, Um, because, again, that's kind of like the mainstream reason why people think that um, other people move out of the coast. Um, So that was um, one tool I used to measure, you know, how different parishes, how different communities have different levels of flood risk. Yeah, the socioeconomic part, I think I think that's kind of the um, their uh, best kept secret, right? That they have that information on there because everybody, we talk about it all the time. We use it in almost every presentation we give just because it gives folks a reason, a good, you know, hands-on resource that you can plug in right. that address. Uh, and you can zoom in and zoom out, but to have something on an address-specific level, um, and you can find out about land loss, you can find out about projects planned for your area, um, you can find out about non-structural measures, but it does have socioeconomic information. I always thought if I right. ever ran for office, I would use that, right? You yeah. I mean, you can it's find one, out... It's a one-stop shop. Right, you can find out um, how many English-speaking residents there are, and, and, and basically, right, it, may, it tells you 
what communities are vulnerable and and that's really helpful so that also you use some um you have some informative maps that show population change and other factors um you you use those in your um in your research or you that is part of the outcome right so that was those are part of the um results and they show different things from um the change in median age of the communities um which actually um, one crazy stat I found from that um, in St. Bernard Parish in 2010, the average age um, of that parish was um, 51 years old. Um, so that kind of stuck out to me because that was much higher than most of the other averages. Um, and so we, we, see, we saw that in the map, um, but it's also kind of important to you know, look at the details and see the fact that you know, 51 years old um, for, for a community for an average age is um, just you know, not not resilient and not really um, sustainable. <laughs> well, and that's probably a factor of like some, the younger folks moved out, right? And the, right, the right. older folks that that didn't want to stay. I had heard once that Lafouche too is a very old parish, you know, age wise right. at their average age. But that tells you that the younger population isn't staying there, or you know that the older folks aren't moving, right? They want to they want to be where they are. <laughs> Maybe both. Well, tell us a little, I mean, it, it, you guys were talking a little bit about socioeconomic data and then, you know, even with like some of the flood risk data and the modeling, I mean, you can get at that, but it seems so difficult to measure cultural values. Mm-hmm. You know, what are some of the challenges there? And especially because, I mean, like, you know, from one end of the bayou to the other, you know, yeah. from one side of the river to the other, things change so quickly. So um, how was that a challenge for you and your research? Well, it was it was actually a huge challenge. Um, I was actually considering not not doing this because at first it, it felt like almost impossible to um, quantify some of these things. Um, and I think, I forgot who said it, but um, someone said that if you want to um, um, solve something, you first have to measure it. And so that was kind of the impetus for me to say, well, you know, it might not be perfect, but let, let me at least, you know, give it a try. Um, and so it's, it's, it's difficult because it's, it's kind of subjective, right? Um, values change yeah, from person right. to person, from community to community. So, um, it did feel weird a little bit at first because I felt like I was kind of breaking a barrier that maybe I shouldn't break. <laughs> um, but um, I, it was a little bit difficult also because I had to kind of, as a researcher, um, try to stay unbiased in everything I did. And because I'm, you know, I, I, I say that I'm Cajun and that I'm part of that culture, I had to kind of remain unbiased, even though some of my experiences, you know, were leading me um, one way or the other. And you know, telling me um, certain things, trying to explain some of the phenomena I saw in my in my results. So um, I had to kind of walk that line as well. Well, I think it's important that you you push through because you know when we talk about the master plan, that is something that it's hard to quantify, right? You know, right. how do you how do you assign a number or a weight to that or a value to that when so much of the other parts of the plan are numerical and can be modeled and you know it's science and and those right. kinds of things, and so it's a little bit harder to do that, but it's it doesn't mean that it's any less important. Um, I think just uh, recently, Jacques and I had on this show, we were talking about home elevation. And one of the reasons why Jacques and I started to talk about it is because we went to the East Bank of Plaquemines Parish and we realized how many um, homes were being elevated. And that was a result of Isaac. And of course, in the community I come from in Terrebonne, um, they also do a lot of non-structural elevations. But, you know, you you also discuss the importance of those non-structural measures to boost community resilience. Tell us from your point of view. Well, uh, I think that those are incredibly important, um, and 
you know, when we talk about South Louisiana, um, it's sometimes a little hard for people to kind of understand, you know, why, why are these people still living down here? You know, it, it floods all the time, you know, um, why, you know, they can't understand why, why people still stay there. Um, and I think that was kind of part of my research was to kind of um, subtly show that, you know, there's these values that are so um, important to these people and their kind of cultural identity that um, these projects to elevate homes, to, you know, restore businesses, they might seem um, kind of like they shouldn't be done because, because you know, it, it's all going to be underwater soon anyway, but um, it's, it's incredibly important um, for that community and for, you know, those cultures. So, um, Brandon, you talked a little bit about your Cajun heritage and upbringing, and certainly, you know, I think Simone and I uh, can relate in terms of, you know, that heritage and influencing the work that you do. Um, so how did that impact your interest in, in wanting to study coastal issues and, and, and you know? I'm assuming your your um, other fellow students were doing other things, right? <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, they were set, well, like they were studying different topics, obviously. So, yeah. what what made right. you? Yeah, I mean, did your you, did your upbringing kind of make you want to study this? Yeah, yeah of course. Um, I, like I said, I still have family um, down there. I actually um, so when I started um, college at LSU, I was really interested in you know the coastal erosion, you know, trying to save land and more of the the you know physical aspects of of saving the coast. Um, but then I, I was actually lucky; I had an internship opportunity at the Water Institute of the Gulf um, with Scott Himmerling, um, and we were doing a project um, that tried to quantify uh, flood risk for um, businesses and um, yeah businesses and facilities along the coast. And um, I actually noticed that one of the businesses was literally right next door to my grandparents' house, um, oh, wow. and so that was um, I, that was a big eye opener, and it made me realize that. You know, we're dealing a lot more than just with just um, land loss here. We're also dealing with that human element to it. Well, I know Scott pretty well. I talk to him a couple of times a week, so I'll be sure to say that you were a great guest. He's a former guest of our show, too. Thank you, Brandon, for being on the show. Uh, we're going to be back from on Delta Dispatches, WGSO 990 AM. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. And today we're especially discussing its cultures. Um, we were so excited to have, you know, a recent graduate of LSU Honors College discuss his research and his um, thesis that he did for for uh, uh, LSU. And our next guest um, has been working in coastal Louisiana for a long time with so many different communities, but I want to make, we, we normally don't plan it this well, and mm-hmm. there's an awesome connection between the two guests. So, um, Dr. Shirley Alaska, um, four of the the sources um, in Brandon's references for his the- thesis are um, former students of Dr. Alaska. So, that's a pretty cool connection, and welcome to Delta Dispatches, um, Dr. Shirley Alaska. Well, thank you very much, Jacques appreciate you having me. Hey, Shirley, this is Simone from Restore Retreat. Hi, Simone. How are you? Nice Good. You. Shirley is the Professor Emerita of Sociology and founding past director of the Center for Hazards Assessment, Response, and Technology at UNO, or UNO Chart. Um, you may have heard of it. Uh, and so you've been doing this uh, for 25 or more years, right, Shirley? You're kind on the length of time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
So we asked Brandon the same question, but um, how did you get involved and interested in this work um, that short time ago? Well, what happened was that I was doing gentrification work, um, study, research, and I was, um, it, this was 1983 when we had an inland storm, much like the 2016 storms. And I was very interested in how homeowners were protecting themselves or trying to in eastern St. Tammany Parish. So I applied for a sea grant and received it, one of the earlier social science grants that Sea Grant awarded. And what I did was studied how they made decisions, especially because at that time there weren't any federal funds to do mitigation of any sort on their houses. So one of my findings was a simple one, but an important one. And I found out that homeowners would try three times if they failed the first and second time to protect their houses, but they would give up after the third. So just this past July, I went to a conference and a man from FEMA came up to me and said, are you the person who did that study that you found out? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I said, I can't believe it. Three decades. So you never know how these little pieces of findings of research will come around. And I just practically fell off my chair. You know, it was really exciting. Talk about another amazing connection, right? That, yeah. that yes, That's what that's stuck. Right. So, um, Dr. Alaska, I mean, you've been working in many different communities. I mean, certainly not just in St. Tammany, but all across our coast and have come in contact, built so many deep relationships. Um, but, you know, 1983 to now, we've seen so much change. So from your perspective, what ha- what are the biggest changes that you've seen, and particularly as it relates to the communities that you've worked most closely with? Well, you know, the effects of the kinds of experiences these these communities have had, some of it, of course, is very dramatic. When they're hit by a hurricane, it's, it's a knockout punch, and they're very attentive to what they experience. But the sea level rise and the gradual flooding of their communities has not been as um, dramatic in terms of their experiences. So it had to build to a point where they became, let's take um, John Lafitte, uh, Mayor, Mayor Kerner, when we first approached him during the uh, era of Katrina, or a little bit before that, he didn't want to elevate the homes because he felt it would look like a fishing camp. And he was right. You know, he had a, a semi-suburban community who, who, you know, he wanted it to re- retain that quality. But we've watched him over the years to the point now that he wants to capture every elevation dollar that Jefferson Parish will bring his way. So it's, it's building, and it's for the good, because we have to pay very close attention to these, these issues now. There's no tomorrow if we don't. And that builds a little bit on the discussion we had with Brandon about people not wanting to leave and what, what keeps them closed. And so um, sometimes it's, it's uh, the decision makers there, right, embracing, you know, maybe change in, in some kind of way that, that, like in the case of Mayor Kerner, he wanted the folks to stay, and so he realized, you know, elevating their homes might reduce some of the risk. Yes, and I think that would be, I'm not familiar with a study that you've just outlined, which would be very interesting, and that would be the role that the local officials play uh, in the decision-making of the, uh, the residents. And I don't mean just in terms of offering them money to elevate or to resettle, but just in terms of attitudes, for example. Uh, let's take the mayor of Grand Isle wanting to have the runway on um, on the island when, you know, on the um, Elmer's, Elmer's Island, mm-hmm. which is a bird sanctuary, 
he really wants Grand Isle to remain, mm-hmm. and he wants to fight for it. And it was, um, you know, it was very interesting um, interaction between him and the residents and the environmentalists and so on. Well, you know, Simone, because that's your your area, you know, um, to uh, to decide that that wasn't possible. But he he wants he wants Grand Isle to be, you know, the Grand Isle of the past. Yeah, we were at Audubon a little vocal on that. Um, you know, we don't. I think Eric Johnson, no. our director of bird conservation, said it best: planes and birds just don't miss. Just don't so, um, but we wish the mayor um, all the best. So, Shirley, you mentioned you know in terms of uh, we talk about all the disciplines that go into studying and 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 acting on the enormous crisis of coastal land loss. Um, and you mentioned social sciences, but can you tell us a little bit about um, what participatory action research is? And then I know you focus a lot as well on, on TEK. Um, what are those and how have you seen them applied as it relates to the coast? Yes, it, uh, um, participatory action research is a step beyond the, um, the basic science that um, Brandon was talking about. Or, or even beyond what we would call applied social sciences, or applied any science. I mean, it can be applied geology, it can be applied biology, where you really try to address solutions for, you know, for communities. But if you see that word action, what we're trying to do is support the, um, the strength and the ability of the community members themselves to speak for themselves, to, to be informed, to go to meetings, to argue the case of the, of the protections they want and the vulnerabilities they feel. So it is a transfer to a, the next step. And now that I'm retired, you know, and, and I have a nonprofit with uh, Christina Peterson, uh, I feel comfortable about that. But as you and I discussed in prepping for this, sometimes it puts you in a situation of really feeling the pain of the community members with whom you're working. So you can't distance yourself like you can when you're a professor and, and swoop in to do some data you know, collection and go back to the university to write up your report and get your journal article published. So it's, it, it places the, um, the person doing the PAR, as we call it, under uh, more, more pressures. You know, it, it's part of the, the deal. And Shirley, like you bring up a point, you know, sometimes people think about the communities threatened by land loss as being, you know, so far away or, or you know, southernmost parts, you know, those kinds of things. But the reality is that that vulnerability comes all the way to the city right here. And, and the fact that, you know, you know, studies this, but I mean, that vulnerability extends all the way to New Orleans, probably even to the North Shore as well. So, you know, can you can you talk about that right now? If, if you know, to any listeners right now, you know, can you can you speak to that or react to that about that vulnerability? So often these days, there's depictions of, of vulnerability um, for sea level rise, and when they show uh, the Greater New Orleans area, they sh- they don't they show the levees, and when when they iterate the number of people who will be at risk to sea level rise, they do not do the count inside the levees, and that really sort of horrifies me because I come from a discipline that was founded by a, a renowned and honorable geographer whose name is Gilbert White. And he, his focus was on flood vulnerability reduction. And he has a strong term for levees. He calls them moral hazards. Mm. That's pretty strong. And what he means is that levees were extremely, are extremely hazardous because they make us feel safe, you know, safer than we are. And the moment a levee is completed in southern Louisiana, it begins to sink. 
and residents need to be informed about their riskiness because they must be kept robust. I mean, that means taxing ourselves, passing legislation to have property tax millage for levies uh, to remain robust, attending meetings of the levy board so that we become informed about what they do and to give their uh, work citizen oversight. This is much effort than those who live outside the levies. And yet we don't think of it that way. And as we've been talking about youth, I know you talked about it with Brandon, and we're going to probably say more, where's that younger generation attending those meetings? Do they even know they exist? Do they care? Do they see them as their future? I think that's a huge challenge that we need to advocate for. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, um, I, I, you know, that, that was a great, you know, case for why our future really depends on these generations and their active engagement. So, um, Dr. Alaska, we're about to go into a break, but I definitely want to come back and talk to you more about the Lowlander Center and some of the great work that you all are doing. Um, do you mind sticking on through one more segment? No, it's fine. Thank you. All right. Well, we will be right back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM, always available online at deltadispatches.org. We'll be right back after the break. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. We're discussing Louisiana's coast. It's people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. So, and we're here back with Dr. Shirley Alaska. Um, so, Dr. Alaska, we always have to ask our guests a fun question. You know, we like to keep it upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but I guess for you, I mean, you've traveled all over, testified before con- congressional committees, you know, been recognized by the National Academy of Sciences. What um, is your, the best place or your favorite place you've traveled for work? The Antarctic. Oh. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a, no okay. <laughs> I went to Fushan last week, Shirley. Be jealous. <laughs> that's amazing. That was, it's a very humbling experience, but wow, just wow. When yeah. were you there? After Katrina, I just needed a break. So I really got a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Shirley goes to the furthest place. <laughs> yeah, needs to disconnect a little bit, get off the grid. I love it. That's great. Well, you mentioned it earlier in the segment um, about the nonprofit that you helped create, the Lowlander Center. Um, tell us a little bit about this organization and its mission and, and some of the work that you undertake there. It was co-founded by Christina Peterson and myself. She's a long-term risk reduction specialist and came to the area because of the storms and the problems people were having in getting the proper resources from the government. And then she she stayed, got her degree from UNO. She's a senior person like myself. And with another one of our graduates, Alessandra Giralaman, we formed the Lowlander about seven years ago. And uh, it's just been exciting ever since. I was thinking about an example, if I could, um, and if I'm going too long, just cut me, but here's, here's the way we, we do our work, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's easy, but it's also a lot of pieces of the puzzle. So I go to a national rural sociology meeting, and I meet a Native American woman from Minnesota. She works for Ag Extension for her tribe. And then with the USDA, Department of Agriculture, NRCS, Conservation Services, there's a special NRCS for Native Americans in, in Minnesota, and they have very qualified people. So we invite them to come here. You see the connectivity that we're talking about? 
We also invite the regional director of NRCS from his Lafayette headquarters. So he and his staff come. The presentation was just dynamite. It was excellent. And that began the creation of a similar program in the coast of Louisiana. It's called the First Peoples Conservation Council of Louisiana. There's seven tribes, six coastal and one inland. They've been meeting for six years, and they're learning about agricultural activities that can get funding, including seafood harvesting. They meet quarterly. They also hold social collaboration meetings. There's two occurring in the next two weeks, one in Terrebonne and one in Tensas Parish. And they just, it's just, um, it just unfolds. So it's sort of like the, the par is sort of seeing the pieces and working hard, you know, and, and always collaboratively with the communities to put the pieces together, you know, for the benefit of reducing vulnerability. So we mentioned him in the first with, with Brandon, but Scott Hammerling, uh, we're working on a project with Scott, and Scott has been able to meet with that group at, at least twice now, and he always reports back about how great and warm and welcoming they are to him, and so it's really great to hear that that background. So, Shirley, where can people find out more information about the Lowlander Center and its work? Yes, uh, you can just Google Lowlander Center. And we have a web a web page, and just go f- find your way through the various you know sections to see the kinds of projects that we're doing, and, and um, it's right there. Mm-hmm. And y'all recently uh, participated in a trip to Alaska, right? What was the purpose of that? And you've been there before. Yes, I have. I was there with the oil spill, uh, and that was quite an amazing experience. Uh, um, exchanging uh, residents of Louisiana with the Exxon Valdez. Um, uh, victims and what they had done to reduce their risk. And um, this time it was a um, Universalist Unitarian Social Services Committee that wanted the, the small communities in the ocean areas of the world who are being forced to resettle to come together to talk about their experiences and the, the challenges that they face and in, in, in accomplishing those resettlements. And it was just amazing. I mean, each time you go to one of these ex- these events, you just are amazed by the resources and the capacity and the, you know, the cultures of these, of these groups. And all we're doing is just playing a tiny role in facilitating more of that collaboration. So, Shirley, I want to switch gears just a little bit. I know that um, one project that you recently worked on uh, was a study funded by the Entergy Foundation about small businesses on the coast and the extreme weather challenges they face. Tell us a little bit about that, because we know, uh, obviously, here in South Louisiana, we have so many small businesses, but um, tell us about that study and its finding. Yes, we were able to, um, to to cover the coast from St. Bernard to Lower Plaquemine to Lafitte to Morgan City and, and also to Delcom. And what we wanted to understand better and to represent in a report is the kinds of challenges that small businesses face. Of course, the first one is the the, the money, the resources to do to, to do the protection. But what we found also is they, they probably don't recognize or give themselves enough time to talk among themselves because there are ways that, that collaboration can go on within communities or within parishes in this, in, this, in this case. And we were very pleased with the product, and you can go on to the, um, the website, the Lowlander Center, and, and see it. Um, for example, something you might not even anticipate would be a problem is that when a small business thinks it's saving money to build to, to build their business building in in metal, 
it turns out that the the salty flood water rust the building. Right, right, good point. And so, yeah, and we know that there are probably materials that can be um, recommended to these these owners. And so what we'd like to do, and this is where we have the, the connections in the hurricane group, is to bring the materials experts from these uh, industry research centers to come here and to look over their challenge and to advise them as to things they might, might, materials they might be able to use that they can afford and that won't be harmed each time a storm comes in. So that, yeah. the, the report's on the Lowlander website. That's so interesting and, you know, so important because you don't want people learning these lessons the hard way in isolation, yeah, that's right? that's a very good point. You know, very you, good point. Yeah, and, and there, there's a hardware store down there that has done every single other thing correctly, elevating their their items, just doing everything wonderfully. And we waxed; we just couldn't get over how wonderful it was until we saw that it was it was a steel building. Yeah. It, also, yeah. too, not about that's a great point about actually building the business and trying to save some dollars to get off the ground, but also like existing businesses about how they prepare for hurricanes and yes. like, mm-hmm. you know, if they have a hurricane kit or if they're, what about evacuation, right. those kinds of things as well, right? How can these communities and businesses better prepare for these challenges, particularly in terms of, of thinking about preserving their culture despite these challenges, right? I mean, if you had to give us some quick tips, Shirley, what, what would some of them be? Well, we the councilwoman down there, and I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize, I'm blanking on her name. She was wonderful in having the meeting. And the people who came really talked afterwards among themselves, and they did recognize that they need to be having small group meetings more and seeking um, re, uh, zero interest loans or small, low interest loans, you know, ways that they can do rotating funds. That's another one that we're pursuing where you pay it back into the fund and then it could be used by another small business to to do the you know to, to do the things that they need to do, so they're they're out there. They just take more hours of you know collaboration with themselves, and uh, you know with organizations like us. I, I will say though, it dawned on me as a sociologist that a small community without businesses is not a community. Yeah, it's yeah, so true. Very point. Yeah. Well, Shirley, I cannot believe we're almost out of time. And like I told you when I asked you to be on that, you know, we could probably have you on for four episodes and still only scratch the surface. <laughs> so I know you have a book coming out. So can we please have you back on when the book is out? And just tell us really quick where, where when the book is coming out and what's it called? It'll be um, mid-spring and it's called Louisiana's Response to Extreme Weather. Ah, well, very interesting. Yes. So it's multidisciplinary. So well, I think it'll it'll capture your interest well we very much look forward to that and i promise if you're willing we'd love to have you back on at that point thank you so much for being with us um and thank you to both of our guests and our listeners you can always listen online deltadispatches.org another great show go out and enjoy the beautiful fall weather for sure have a great weekend